The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. Today, we are going all the way to Denmark to discuss the case of journalist Kim Wall. Kim was an amazing woman, an amazing journalist, and was a bit of a global citizen, someone who loved life, and especially the stranger parts of it. Unfortunately, her quest for truth in the unusual would lead to her untimely and equally unusual demise in 2017 at the hands of someone unsuspecting. I won't keep you waiting, so let's just jump right in. Kim Isabel Frederica Wall was born on March 23, 1987, in the south of Sweden to parents Ingrid and Joachim Wall. The family lived approximately 40 miles or about 64 kilometers from Copenhagen in the small town of Trelleborg. Even as a young child, Kim was always known to be exceptional. She was ambitious and always thirsty for more. More adventure, more opportunity, more life. Given that, as she grew older, she found herself studying at a variety of different places in her life, quenching both that lust for life and for lifelong learning. The natural progression of her nature landed her in the field of journalism, and it all began with a degree in international relations from the London School of Economics and Political Science in England. She eventually studied at Beijing University, and then would go on to graduate with a master's degree in journalism and international relations from Columbia University in New York. Throughout her budding career as a journalist, Kim reported on the quote-unquote fringes of society. According to the Pulitzer Center, where you can find a full tribute about Kim, she reported on quote, identity, social justice, and foreign policy. She wrote pieces for the New York Times, Vice, Time, and more, detailing chronicles of her findings in Haiti while studying voodoo practices, in the war-torn fields of Sri Lanka while looking at why people are so invested in dark tourism. She also found herself in Cuba, investigating the underground network of internet and media sharing amongst a population of censored people. An article I read from Inside Edition said Kim Wall was, quote, fearless in her pursuits, and she called her own work a legacy of the undercurrents of rebellion. Kim Wall's journalism was hard-hitting, relentless, and very obviously rigorous. To say that her death was a monumental loss for journalism is a massive understatement, and even saying that, in my opinion, doesn't hold enough weight to emphasize the gravity. But I digress. In 2017, Kim had been dating a young man by the name of Ole Staub, I'm a little unclear on how long they'd been together, but most of the sources I read said, quote-unquote, a little while. Kim had turned 30 that year, and staying true to herself and her spirit, was planning to move to Beijing, China in August of 2017 with her boyfriend Ole. The couple had been staying together near Copenhagen, Denmark, around where Ole was from, and in the summer of that year, they were spending their last few weeks together in Denmark before heading across the world to plant their roots in China. 
But it was in those last few weeks in Denmark, where Ole and Kim were spending their time together, taking in their surroundings before heading halfway across the world, that Kim got wind of a potential story. A man named Peter Madsen was in the area, and he had been amassing quite a reputation. To some, he was just some 46-year-old guy who locked himself in a storage unit all day, tinkering around with scrap metal and materials. But if you knew, you knew. Peter Madsen was a quote-unquote self-taught engineer and inventor, and he made large-scale art projects that doubled as engineering feats. Peter Madsen had recently finished the construction of a fully operational 53-foot-long midget submarine, the UC-3 Nautilus. Shortly after, he co-founded a space expedition company with a former NASA contractor, Kristen von Bengsten, called Copenhagen Suborbitals. The plan for their company was to launch the first ever totally do-it-yourself rocket into space, which by no means is a tame or humble task to take on. Peter's endeavors were bold, and according to many of the articles I read, he developed a reputation for being an anti-establishment celebrity in Denmark. Given his reputation, Peter had several documentaries made about him during his time as an artistic engineer, with one filmmaker commenting, quote, You had a sense that he was doing something different. It was something bigger. It was something worth being a part of. However, the working relationship between Peter and Kristen von Benston, that former NASA contractor, would eventually dissolve during the filming of another documentary titled Amateurs in Space. But despite losing a friend, it was really no trouble for Peter. Him and Kristen went their separate ways to continue their rocket building as separate entities, undertaking their own underground, informal space race, both of them independently occupying empty shipping hangars that were abandoned off the coast of Cogue Bay near Copenhagen. It was around this time when Kim got wind of Peter and his shenanigans, for lack of a better word, and she was interested in all of it, but particularly the construction process of the UC-3 Nautilus, that submarine Peter built. Kim was able to secure an interview with someone else at Peter's independent company, Copenhagen Suborbitals, and was next hoping to speak with him directly. Unfortunately, however, the interview request she had sent out to Peter Madsen in early 2017 was completely ignored. When Kim Wall reached out for an interview, her calls went unanswered. But like any good journalist, Kim Wall was resilient, and so she didn't take it personally and moved on. Soon it would be mid-August of 2017, and her departure to Beijing was only in a few days. She was supposed to leave on August 16th, and so when she got a text message from Peter Madsen on August 10th of that year, it was quite surprising and a little last minute. That evening, on August 10th, Kim and Ole had been preparing for a farewell party for themselves, along the water just north of Cogue Bay. The couple had been setting up a barbecue when that text from Peter Madsen came through to Kim, inviting her over to his hangar-slash-workshop for tea, and, like a good journalist does, Kim did not hesitate to accept it. Despite being last minute, 
She knew that this may or may not be her only chance to get an interview and a story out of Peter Madsen. Like I had mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Kim Wall was relentless in her research and diligence as a journalist, so off she went. She told Ole she'd be back soon, and with what I can only presume was some level of enthusiasm, away she went. Only a short time later that same evening, while Ole continued to set up for the party and as the guests started to arrive, Kim returned. She had her tea with Peter and excitedly told her boyfriend Ole that Peter had invited her for a short expedition on the UC3 Nautilus. This would be the perfect setting for the interview she's been wanting for about a year now, and she asked Ole if he wanted to join. According to him, he was pretty close to saying yes, but didn't feel right about both of them abandoning the party they had both gone so far out of their way to set up. After all, it was a work endeavor for Kim, and it was a short expedition. Presumably, she'd be back in time to say her due farewells to the friends and family who attended the party. Then they would spend their new chapter together in Beijing, set to depart in six days from the date of the party. So he said no, and Kim left Ole behind, and Ole enjoyed the party. Once she arrived to the submarine belonging to Peter Madsen at around 7pm that evening on August 10th, she started to send Ole some photos of the vessel itself and then her at the steering wheel. Although I'm sure Ole enjoyed these photos, I don't think he anticipated that they would be the last she would ever send him. I don't think he anticipated that the last time he would ever see his girlfriend Kim would be across the water all the way in the distance, watching her board the submarine and them taking off. Kim Wall did not return to the farewell party that evening. The goodbyes intended for her were never received and the party moved to a nearby bar, and all Olstob could do was pretend to have fun and enjoy the effort put into organizing the gathering. But in the back of his mind, he was worried. Evidently, this is a crime podcast, and I'm sure you can gather that he had every right to worry, and unfortunately soon, his worst fears would be realized. Ole and Kim were supposed to attend a wedding the next day, I'm not sure where or when they were supposed to depart, but when Kim didn't return by the end of the party, Ole certainly knew something was wrong. It wasn't like her to be untimely or possibly risk being out too late and sleeping in, missing their plans for the next day, and it especially wasn't like her to not keep in touch. After all, this was supposed to be a short expedition on Peter Madsen's submarine. But Ole found himself unable to settle down, even after the party was over, into the early hours of the next morning. Before long, he found himself biking around the shoreline, around where Kim had last been seen alive, trying to find any semblance of his girlfriend. When no sign of her turned up, he decided to file a missing persons report at 1.45am on August 11th. At around 4 a.m., local police were notified about an accident that occurred in the Cogue Bay. Rescue teams began searching for remnants of some kind of wreckage, but didn't see anything until approximately 10.30 a.m. the next day, on August 11th, when the UC3 Nautilus was spotted near a lighthouse. Upon investigation, it didn't take very long to find Peter Madsen nearby with a local man who was helping in the search. 
According to this man, Peter had been spotted going down the hatch of the submarine before re-emerging as the submarine began to sink, and then he started swimming toward the boat when he was taken out of the water. At this point in the morning, local news media had picked up on the fact that police and rescuers were out looking for a missing submarine with two possible missing persons out there too. So when Peter was pulled to shore, there were both police and news agencies waiting for him to document what happened. The only comment he made was to a reporter, saying he was fine, but sad that his submarine had sank. When police were able to locate the submarine underwater, they suspected it looked foundered, meaning full of water. It seems like a pretty straightforward accident scene. Some guy gets rescued from a submarine that started sinking, and evidently he built it himself. Although he was a renowned engineer, he was self-taught after all, wasn't too far out of the realm of reality to believe that maybe his design just wasn't flawless. But the only issue here was the other person who was on the expedition at the time the submarine sank, Kim Wall. Kim was nowhere to be found, not in, near, or anywhere around the submarine, and she certainly wasn't with Peter. When people realized that Kim Wall was supposed to be with Peter, and evidently she wasn't, he made a comment about how once the submarine started having issues, he dropped her off on land. However, upon further investigation of the vessel itself, it seemed that the submarine was foundered on purpose. Peter had scuttled it, or in boating terms, cut a hole in it to sink it on purpose. With an intentionally sunken ship and no Kim anywhere to be found, police didn't hesitate to arrest Peter and charge him, at least, with involuntary manslaughter. According to an article I read from Wired.com by Mei Jiang, Police stated that the arrest was made for, quote, having killed in an unknown way in an unknown place Kim Isabel Frederica Wall of Sweden sometime after Thursday, 5 p.m. Peter had only been out of the water for a few minutes before his plan started to unravel, and it had become obvious that he hadn't dropped Kim off on land, or else she would have returned home, and she hadn't just vanished into thin air. Something much more sinister, much more insidious had happened and it didn't take long for people to start figuring that out. The next day, Peter was escorted to a courtroom where he testified to, in fact, not dropping Kim off on land, and he admitted that yes, she was deceased. But according to him, it was an accident. He claimed that Kim died in a freak accident on the vessel, that the submarine hatch fell on her head, which caused him to panic, given the circumstances, and he dragged her body out into the water before leaving it there. Although a simple and possibly believable explanation, this wouldn't be the end of Peter Madsen's ever-evolving story, as a cyclist would stumble upon a discovery a week later on August 21st of 2017 that very much did not align with Peter's second version of events. That day, someone riding their bicycle along the island of Amager, not far from where the submarine sank and Peter was discovered, came across a human torso. Once reported, it was immediately processed for forensic analysis, and on the very next day, August 22nd, it was proven to belong to Kim. Evidently, Peter didn't think anyone would find any semblance of Kim. There was a clear effort to conceal her remains, given the presence of a metal fixture attached to her torso, 
likely done in an attempt to ensure it wouldn't surface, and reveal the 15 stab wounds she had sustained, mostly to her groin area. As we see Peter's story unravel even more, then on October 6th, more parts of Kim were found in the water surrounding Copenhagen. Police divers assisted by cadaver dogs found two plastic bags in the Coke Bay. Inside was Kim's head, along with her legs, her clothes, and a knife. A few days later, on the 12th, a saw was found. At this point, her arms were still missing, but regardless, the picture painted by what was found was a clear one, and again, did not align with Peter's version of events. It had become apparent to police that they were dealing with someone who was much more sadistic, much more dangerous than they had originally anticipated. But despite the damning evidence found, Peter was sticking to his original story. Kim died by accident. He disposed of her body in one piece. He did not dismember her, and he does not know how she ended up in pieces. He stuck to this story even after the knife and saw were found. He stuck to this story even after post-mortem examination of her head revealed no blunt force trauma consistent with the submarine hatch falling onto someone. He stuck to this story even after his computer and other devices were summoned for examination, revealing over 140 video clips downloaded of violent pornography with frequent searches for things like beheading girl and throat cut. Although the general public, who may have idolized Peter in some regard for his anti-establishment heroism, had no idea what he was capable of, these kinds of violent fantasies were ones that some of his own acquaintances knew he had. A previous sexual partner of his was reported to have been engaging in some sort of sexual game with him, centered around the threat of potential violence. According to that same article I read from Wired.com by Mei Zhang, Peter was evidently someone who looked down upon others for being cautious. The idea of violence and danger thrilled him, and he had teased the idea to others of murdering a woman in his submarine as a sexual fantasy. None of them realized he was entirely serious. On October 30th of 2017, only a few days after the most recent discovery of Kim's remains, Peter Madsen decided to change his story once again. This time, according to Copenhagen police, Peter told them that Kim must have died from carbon monoxide poisoning, but the most remarkable change is that he did admit to dismembering her. He stated that it was possible that poisonous exhaust gases entered the submarine while he was outside on deck, and he didn't realize until it was too late. That's when he panicked and dismembered her. Again, sounds potentially believable, but the main issue with this series of events was that further post-mortem examination conducted on the rest of Kim's body parts that were found revealed no sign of carbon monoxide entering her body, entering her lungs, in any capacity that's abnormal after death. So this story didn't stack up on its own. Then about a month later, on the 21st and 25th of November, her arms were found in the water, weighed down with metal pipes. Even if Kim died by accident, many people were wondering why would you go to such lengths to hide her body, dismembering it and trying to weigh it down with metal fixtures, if it was just an accident? Why would you scuttle your own homemade submarine, the very invention that brought you infamy, 
the very invention that brought you a career in engineering and art, if you weren't trying to cover up something with a risk much bigger than the reward of keeping it. Given the gruesome nature of Kim's apparent murder, police decided it would be best to try and probe into some other unsolved cases from various regions. After all, it's not uncommon that a murder of this nature is committed by someone who certainly had practice. One example where they were probing was in the Swedish region of Skane, just east of Copenhagen, where it had been reported that over 120 unsolved killings, some of which involved dismembered remains, could be reinvestigated in the wake of Peter's arrest. Although I'm not entirely sure if anything conclusive has come out of these probes, by this time, although possibly not reported on to the fullest extent, I'm sure many police agencies in Europe and beyond were considering reopening cases to test Peter Madsen's DNA. At this point, international media had gone wild with this story given the brutality and sheer randomness of the attack on Kim. Eventually, the court where Peter's trial would take place would end up opening its doors to as many as 115 journalists from 15 different countries. The death of Kim Wall was on everybody's radar, and people were rightfully shocked, confused, and curious, especially given Peter's unsuspecting nature. Mei Zhang from Wired.com used a great word to describe Peter and his demeanor, hoodwinked. Peter Madsen's fascination with engineering and art could hoodwink you into thinking he was a man of benign passion, artistic dreams, curiosity, and innocent wonder. However, we know, in hindsight, that he was a violent sexual sadist. But despite the seemingly endless number of stories we hear of innocent-looking or innocent-acting people becoming the perpetrators of unspeakable violence, it doesn't get any easier to stomach. And thus, this case captivated the world. In mid-January of 2018, Peter's charges were being changed to homicide that took place with prior planning and preparation. He was also charged with sexual relations other than intercourse of a particularly dangerous nature and dismemberment. Police later elaborated on these statements with the release of an indictment, which highlighted that Peter brought all the tools he would need to commit his crime on board the UC3 Nautilus before Kim even arrived. During the trial, which began on March 8th of 2018 at the Copenhagen Courthouse, the prosecution highlighted that premeditation aspect, but also the details of Kim's brutal demise. Although difficult to piece together given the fact that Kim was not found whole, to Peter, Kim's murder was clearly everything he had been planning for. Peter was able to successfully beat her, torture her, possibly strangle her, and slit her throat either before, during, or after a sexual assault took place which Peter denied, despite there being seminal evidence found on Kim's underwear. During the trial, a forensic psychiatrist described Peter as a perverse polymorph with psychopathic traits, meaning Peter got off on what he did to Kim, which at this point I don't think is lost on us. When it came to arguing the logistics of the murder, the prosecution argued the points of no blunt force trauma consistent with the hatch falling, in addition to the lack of carbon monoxide in Kim's lungs. All of this ties into Peter's ever-evolving story, but the presiding judge, Judge Burko, also added that it was evident that dismembering Kim's body was not consistent of Peter's story of an accident happening, something I mentioned before. 
This is an obvious point to us that this entire thing was premeditated, but it's an important one to note that the judge made, because it seemed like the only person in the courtroom who was unsure about what happened was Peter. Everyone in the courtroom that day knew that the murder of Kim Wall was premeditated and violent, and even further, that Peter Madsen enjoyed it. This brings to light another point about the psychopathic traits of Peter Madsen. I am certainly no psychologist, that's for sure. I haven't gone to school to study this type of thing in a formal academic setting. But what I do know is that when a violent sexual sadist chooses to commit a crime, and then when all of the evidence comes pointing right back at him, and yet he continues to go through with a full trial, despite it being as easy as pleading guilty and going straight to jail to resolve the entire ordeal. To me, at least, and to other scholars, that indicates that he's just trying to squeeze out his very last few drops of enjoyment out of the whole situation. It wasn't enough for Peter Madsen to murder Kim Wall in a violent way and enjoy it sexually. He then became solely responsible for dragging her friends and family through an entire court process, just so they could sit there and relive it all with him. But thankfully, Judge Annette Burko recognized that. On April 25th, 2018, Peter Madsen was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment, which is Denmark's harshest punishment possible. To justify such a harsh sentence, in the words of presiding judge Annette Burko, quote, This is a cynical and pre-planned sexual assault of a particularly brutal nature on a random woman who, in connection with her journalistic work, accepted an invitation on a sailing trip on the accused submarine. By acknowledging the brutal and intentional nature of this crime, the presiding judge could hand out the harshest possible sentence, and thus take Peter Madsen off the streets for good. There is another angle to this story that I haven't yet broached, but it's one that I want to talk about, and I think it is put eloquently in the words of Mei Jiang, the journalist I spoke about who wrote for Wired.com. She's actually someone who knew Kim Wall, and this is what she said. Quote, Kim and I often talked about the challenges of reporting while being young, while being a woman. Harassment, come-ons, and our fear of not being tough enough were perennial concerns. This was especially true on the road. During a reporting trip to Cuba in 2016, Kim texted me to say that as a strategy against unrelenting harassment, she had invented a fictional New York City fiancé. The irony of the go-to deflecting move being to proclaim attachment to another man was not lost on us. In the days after she disappeared, I heard people ask questions that betrayed a misunderstanding about reporting. Couldn't she have just done the interview over the phone? In casual sexism, why was she there alone so late? There's not much I can add on to Mei Zhang's sentiments about the violence women face in the workplace and the culture of sexism that surrounds independent, strong, steadfast women such as Kim. The only thing I can think to make note of is that these men are our neighbors, our friends, and our colleagues. It's extremely disheartening to live in a world where a man who brutally tortured, assaulted, and dismembered a woman on the job receives as much blame for doing so as the woman he killed for simply being alone at night with a man. 
Strong-boned, steadfast women like Kim continue to be punished in our society in various ways, whether it's through violence and aggression, or inequality with pay or respect. It's horrifying to know that women like Kim Wall, who contributed to society in more ways than Peter Madsen ever could, would still be condemned just for being a woman. This is exactly why uplifting and protecting women in whatever they do is so critical. Not only did the world lose out on Kim Wall's possible contribution to journalism throughout the rest of what would have been her life, but also we can't disregard her inherent value as a human being, as someone's partner, as someone's daughter. Evidently, she was embedded in a social network that loved her and cared for her deeply, and the selfish actions of a sadistic man took that all away. Thankfully, those who loved her continued on her legacy in the best ways. In the wake of Kim's murder, her friends and family started the Kim Wall Memorial Fund. This fund was dedicated to female journalists who covered stories similar to what Kim did in her work. It's dedicated to women who decide to write about the underground, the subcultures of society, and in my opinion, it's the perfect way to honor Kim Wall and her legacy. She is not only just remembered for being the victim of a brutally horrific crime, but also as an inspiration to women in journalism, women in science, and women in all fields who are continuously battered by society and yet refuse to stand down. On November 9th of 2018, Kim Wall's parents published a book in her memory which, in English, is titled A Silenced Voice. In it, you can read all about Kim Wall's jam-packed life and experiences as a global citizen in journalism. I'll have it linked on my website at crimopediapod.ca, which is also where you can find all the source material for this episode. In a documentary series called Secret Recordings that aired in 2020, Peter Madsen finally admitted what he did to Kim Wall in full. This admission of guilt only came after an attempt to appeal his sentence in September of 2018, but thankfully it was upheld by the High Court of Eastern Denmark. There's also a Netflix documentary out now about this case, titled Into the Deep, The Submarine Murder Case. Although it doesn't dive too deeply into Kim Wall's life, not quite like her parents' book does, I recommend you watch it if you're interested in learning about how such a tight-knit community was able to rebound from such a horrific crime. If you Google Kim Wall, the majority of publications you'll find about her are her own works and heartfelt memorials about her. She touched the lives of so many with her vibrance, and her legacy is written in stone forever, immortalized in her work that inspired so many. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. This was a hard one, but it's one I've been wanting to talk about for a while because Kim's legacy is so amazing. If you enjoyed this episode, then be sure to follow wherever you're listening now, and I'll see you here for the next one. Until then, be safe, and leave women alone. Mm -hmm.